Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Every major political movement in this country's history has been led by the energy of young people. As a kid growing up in Virginia, I was inspired by John Lewis, Julian Bond, and Ruby Bridges. It was because of their example as a young person that I wanted to fight to protect voting rights in my home state. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, you'll hear the voices of three young women who are making our state better. Later, you'll hear from a young scholar activist who's focused on environmental justice and declaring racism as a public health crisis. We'll also talk to the 23-year-old president of the NAACP of Connecticut State Conference Youth and College Division. But first, meet Sahar Amjad. She's a senior in college and was recommended to us because of her work on the I Am Not a Virus campaign. It's an organization fighting anti-Asian discrimination while celebrating the humanity of Asian American communities. Sahar is also a transportation activist, and she works as the Transport Hartford Assistant Coordinator at the Center for Latino Progress. And she's also committed to bringing communities together. She does so by speaking out at Muslims for Black Lives Matter rallies across the state. Sahar Amjad joined us to talk about her activism and how it connects every area of her life. I asked her to start with her work on the I Am Not a Virus campaign. So the I'm Not a Virus campaign initially started as uh, Mike Keough, who is a photographer, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and in light of all of the anti-Asian sentiment that was coming from that, he wanted to just photograph his friends and family and show that they're not the virus. They are sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. They are community workers. They are people who you see out and about living their daily lives as normal people. And there's nothing, there's no reason to be afraid of these people, these smiling faces staring back at you. And that gained a lot of traction. And from there, we've been creating projects, uh, discussion groups and events with universities uh, in Connecticut and um, across the United States to raise awareness for that kind of that narrative to make sure that Asians, Asian Americans are seen as people, whole people, and they're not connected to this idea of a pandemic or a virus because it's, it's racist. And part of the challenge of affirming that, of seeing people as humans, as people, and, and affirming the fullness of their existence is also affirming the fullness of the community. And one of the things that you've talked about is how your personal experience as a Pakistani American Muslim woman has affected your role in terms of how you see your voice being a part of that. Why is it important to tell your story in connection to that fullness of community? Because 
people don't see themselves represented enough, people of color, especially when I look towards all of my icons in political work, in grassroots organization, I don't really see a lot of people who look like me. And if I can be that person for somebody else, if another Pakistani Muslim woman is out there and she is doubting herself and she doesn't know if anybody can relate to her story, I can be that person. I can be sitting there doing this work, enjoying it, thriving in it, and show somebody, no, you can do this too. I didn't think I could either. And here I am now. And here you are now, but you are really thriving in this space. How do you take on that challenge of, as you said, being not just a voice, but an affirmation for other people who may not see themselves represented? Is that a heavy burden or do you see it as part of what you're called to do? I've always uh, taken on a mediator role in most uh, interactions. So for me, it's not as much a burden as it is something that comes naturally to me. It's part of the work that I want to do in the future. It's part of what I'm in school for. I'm studying psychology and one of my potential paths into the future is into social work. And it's the kind of work that I want to do. But more importantly, it's what I would have wanted to hear, what I would have wanted to tell 14-year-old Sahar, things that she needed to uplift herself to get to now, where 23-year-old Sahar is. 23 years old and already taking on the world. I love it. (laughs) You know, one of the other ways that you are tackling these big issues, but starting right where you are, is that you are also working as the Transport Hartford Assistant Coordinator of the Center for Latino Progress, where part of your work is reimagining public transportation and advocating walkability in Connecticut. What does that intersection look like for you? It overlaps in so many different ways. I think the biggest way is realizing that public transportation, uh, transportation in general, does not take into account overburdened and underserved populations. So if you look in the city of Hartford, There are 65 pedestrian deaths annually, and there are ways to make that system better for pedestrians, for bikers, and there are ways to make that system more equitable as well for the people who are living here, because it's a city of mostly people of color. And why is it that the city of Hartford, our state's capital, where there are, where the population is predominantly people of color, where, why do we see all of these uh, environmental issues? Why do we see all of these transportation issues? You would think that this is somewhere where those things, topics of that nature would just be given more weight and they have more money and more resources and manpower put behind them. What do you say to people who say, look, this isn't about race or about class or about equity. It's about where people choose to live. That's what we hear all the time, especially about big cities or major cities like Hartford. If people want to have a different path, just choose to live somewhere else. What do you say to people who are doubters? That it's very important to keep history in context. Our nation's history of slavery, our nation's history of then from their segregation and from their redlining, all of that impacts who can live where. And just because 
racism isn't overtly in the laws anymore doesn't mean that the impacts of that previous wrongdoing don't have any effect today. It takes time and it takes effort and blood, sweat and tears to change entire systems. And we have not, as a nation, put in the work required to make sure that our history isn't still affecting our present and our future. One of the ways that we've seen people harnessing that history, the the historical efforts to dismantle some of these structural barriers and meld that with what we're facing today is the celebration of Transit Equity Day, which is recognized on February 4th, which is Rosa Parks' birthday, as you know, and looks at that relationship between transportation, equity and justice that has been occurring overall. What would you say to listeners who want to know how they can support equity and transportation and also address some of the bigger issues that you've mentioned about that historical uh, marginalization of communities and the need to affirm that fullness? I think that educating oneself is the most important part of all of that. Um, And it doesn't need to be a formal education because uh, as somebody who's currently in university right now, I see how much pressure there is for students to get that degree and get out the door. And while that is important, your lived experience is just as important. And the things that you learn while living in your built environment are just as important. And harnessing that knowledge and then knowing how to make the most change within our current political system is what will ha- what will incite change. And that's part of what we do at the Transport Hartford Academy is we hosted an event on climate activism and how to do it properly, how a bill passes through, which advocates you need to know how to reach out to and how to reach out to those people. So that aspect of education, educating oneself and finding the resources and having community education wherein People who live in that environment, who know how to help, offer their time and their resources to educate others so that they can feel empowered to do that work themselves if need be. You describe yourself as a mediator but you're also a bridge builder. So you were very active in an event here in Connecticut and you spoke at a Muslims for Black Lives Matter rally at the state capitol. Why do you think it's important for communities to come together to address these common enemies and be able to work through some of the traditional divides that we've seen in this country? It's because the enemy is that divide. When we sit down together and when we, especially as people of color, sit down together and talk about our cultures and talk about the traumas that we face simply due to our race, it creates a bond and that division lessens. We see that we're not fighting against one another for any resources, any equity. We're fighting with each other and we're looking out for one another because if the issue doesn't get better for one group of people, then it doesn't get better for anyone and nobody gets left behind in all that. There's a power in that coming together of affirming that, that what binds us together is often greater than what separates us. In addition to all of your work, all of your activism, 
you're also a student. So you said you're a psychology major at UConn. You're also an artist and a writer, and you are host of a podcast called Not So Grown Up. So Har, I'm convinced that I want to be like you whenever I grow <laughs> up, right? <laughs> How does your activism overlap with or intersect with the work that you are doing in these academic and creative circles as well? I think for academia, my pursuit with that began, became one that was powered by mental health. I think that's very important for people to recognize and for the resources to help overcome one's own trauma or work through it should be made available to everyone. And I myself took a break from college because it was just, it was just too much. There's too much going on. And I needed to take care of myself mentally. And that's where my podcast came from. And the theme was lost and confused 20-somethings who were just sitting down and talking about their own feelings and their own paths through life. And it eventually evolved on to talking to people who were once lost and confused 20-somethings and are now lost and confused 30-somethings. And then you become, you slowly come to realize that everybody's a little bit lost and confused. We just kind of pick one thing and bear down on it. And if that doesn't work, we put that down, pick something else up and bear down on that. And that's really what it's, it's all about, isn't it? If one thing doesn't work, it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. It just means you haven't found something for you yet. So you put that down, regroup, refocus your efforts, find something else that you enjoy, something else that you're passionate about, and move forward. And if it's not something that you're passionate about, at least something that you enjoy. I love that you said things may not work. It's not the people that don't work. It's the things and the circumstances that we face as you are working through all of this and working through what you want to do to be healthy and whole and to affect the communities that you care about. I have to ask, what are you thinking about next post-graduation or post the next project? What's next for you? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'm, I think for the longest time, what made it difficult for me was the idea of hyper-focusing on what comes next and instead of trying to grow within the spaces that I already have and create opportunities from that. Um, and I think my time off from college gave me that perspective that I needed because the work that I'm doing now for transport, the Transport Hartford Academy, I started working there because of my podcast. I interviewed my old boss and he was, I told him I was looking for work and we made connections, networked, and I ended up working there. So I think my personal motto has switched from hyper-focus on the future to grow where I am. And if that leads to opportunities that I'm interested in, take them. Grow where you are. Sahar Amjad is communications manager at the hashtag I am not a virus campaign. She's the Transport Hartford assistant coordinator of the Center for Latino Progress, and she's a student at UConn. Sahar, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. 
For more on the I Am Not A Virus campaign, visit IamNotAVirus.info. Coming up later in the hour, we'll talk to the 23-year-old who's president of the NAACP of Connecticut's Youth and College Division. And right after the break, Catherine Morris calls herself a scholar activist. Find out how she's fighting for environmental justice right here in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're lifting the voices of three young activists, disruptors, here in Connecticut. Later, Akia Callum talks about her involvement in the church as a young girl and how it planted the seeds to fight for racial justice today. But now, meet Catherine Morris. Kat calls herself a scholar activist, and her work focuses on environmental justice. She's also getting her master's of public policy at the University of Connecticut. I asked her to first explain what she means by the phrase scholar activist. For me, being a scholar activist means constantly um, balancing my relationship with academia to my relationship with the general community, because for unfortunate reasons, the two are not uh, properly linked. Uh, So that means anytime I do research, trying to make it based in community um, participants, or there's something called community-based participatory research specifically. Um, So making sure that, say, I have to do a study based on something that's engaging their community specifically, it should be, you know, everyday people, not just advanced stakeholders who are creating policies or um, running corporations or so on and so forth, having an input into the status of their community. Um, But it also looks like actively doing research for the goal of improving something that's lacking in the community. Of course, it would be one that I'm from, um, right? So if I'm trying to do research, I'm going to make it focused on how to advance environmental justice rather than just how to study what's going on somewhere or how to do something that has no um, tangible outcome. You know, often for academics and, and working in that space, people are actively discouraged from engaging with community, that the goal is for you to study that community and tell them what they need. And the work that you do around environmental justice is really about listening to community and figuring out where those spaces are of overlap to empower those voices instead of dictating those voices. Talk to our listeners about what environmental justice is and how that frames your approach to being in conversation with community. Yeah, so environmental justice, um, and thank you for that description before, that was perfect. Um, Environmental justice is basically the opposite of environmental racism. So the fact that as current structures have made it, Black, uh, Latinx, and Indigenous communities are far more likely to be exposed to environmental pollutants. So whether that be through air pollution, because their town like Bridgeport or Hartford, Connecticut, for instance, has the the largest incinerators in the state, and they are far more likely to have a lot of car pollution because there's car exhaust and you know inefficient um, public transportation to mitigate that. Um, 
having less access to healthy food, right? So having existing in food deserts and food swamps, right? So in Connecticut alone, we see um, that Black and Latinx um, children are about four and five times more likely to go to the, the emergency room for um, an asthma attack because of uh, environmental racism. So environmental justice for me means eliminating that from our current reality. Like we've accepted these things as ways of life and uh, we don't need to, and I would rather them not be the case. So the thing is environmental justice, as you brought up, requires community input, right? Um, another activist in Connecticut, um, her name is Corinne Prescott. One thing she said to me on a panel that I was hosting um, was the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Like, period. Like, there's really nothing else. Like, how could you, who has no experience, tell someone what they're experiencing, first of all, and how to solve that problem? Right. It doesn't make sense. And I actively reject all forms of academia that operate in that form, which is what being a scholar activist means to me. You know, we've learned a lot over the last year, not just about the existence of these challenges, but also the ignorance or the willful ignorance toward these challenges. You mentioned those excessive rates of asthma, how those environmental hazards then make people more prone to negative outcomes with COVID-19. And as you say in your work, this is not new. We have known this. So now that people can no longer say they weren't aware that it's not just about the individual choice to eat healthy, but it's the structural access to healthy foods and to having options, what are some things that you think we should be doing right here in Connecticut right now to address some of these structural challenges in the work that you're doing? Yeah. So first of all, we need to increase collective efficacy overall. How we go about doing that, that's that's multifaceted, but um, basically collective efficacy is like, it refers to the ability for a community or um, a group of individuals to take control over developing their community as they see it fit, right? How, what positive changes do they wanna make? I recognize I can make those changes and I do that. That's what collective efficacy um, means to me. So first of all, increasing that, right? So getting people more involved in, when it, there are a lot of towns like Hartford and Bridgeport, um, which I'm just most familiar with those areas. They have NRZs, right? So something like um, neighborhood revitalization zones. The state of Connecticut should be funding those, right? They used to be funded when they were originally created back in like the, uh, late 80s, but now they're no longer funded. So you're taking away um, a lot of uh, access to enriching collective power um, that would advance um, people's abilities to solve problems that they're most intimately aware of. Um, so that's one thing. We should not have food swamps or food deserts. So a food swamp is when for every like one grocery store, there are five fast food restaurants. Right. So that should not be the case if you want people to um, no longer have excessive rates of diabetes or um, other, you know, cardiovascular diseases and so on and so forth. Um, so increasing access to organic and healthy foods, um, that doesn't necessarily look like getting rid of all the bodegas that happen to 
uh, sell, you know, unhealthier foods like junk foods and whatnot, but rather increasing their access to fresh produce to disseminate throughout their communities, right? Um, it looks like increasing the amount of farmers markets that exist and their availability. And so doing things like that to make sure that communities have more community farms, right? And farmers markets and community gardens, rather. Guerrilla gardening, so to speak, uh, is very, it's growing out particularly in like San Francisco um, and, uh, you know, San Diego and California areas where there are a lot of like parking lots that are abandoned. Um, there's nothing going on there. I know where there are quite a few of those in Connecticut, right? So we can transform those areas so that they are producing something that's good for our well-being rather than just maybe producing something for um, economic means. Um, and so on. I can go on for a while, but I don't want to uh, monopolize time. But in that way. What I appreciate about your overview of that is that it shows just how interconnected and multi-layered these challenges are, that it's not enough to just say we should have healthier food options. We have to also think about the supply chain and the pricing and how that affects access and who's leading some of these efforts. You have talked about the importance of intersectionality in the activism yeah. that you do and the importance of looking at these multiple interlocking structures that Kimberly Crenshaw talks about that can have differential outcomes for, for multiple groups. Why is intersectionality important and needed as we address some of these big issues? Yeah, for, for the exact reason that you put, nothing is um, separate everything's interconnected, right? And as people and populations that live together, we're entirely interconnected as well. Um, and truly we're interdependent. I think that's something that I wanna emphasize. It's not just that, okay, we're impacted by it because we're neighbors. Like we rely on each other um, as a species, as a collective, as communities. So we cannot disregard someone else's plight. We cannot disregard someone else's experience um, or um, how they're, oppressed in their way, their relative oppression, nor can we disregard our relative privileges when we're in addressing situations either. And so any activism that doesn't do that uh, is really missing the mark, right? And they're missing opportunities for collaboration um, that to me ultimately allows for a greater rate of success, so to speak, um, when you have multiple heads working on a situation that ha come with um, a variety of perspectives and you're able to really value everyone's perspective, um, you're more likely to find a solution that doesn't leave anyone out and you're able to be more holistic in the way you address problems. So let's talk about how we show up for ourselves and show up for other people. You gave a TEDx talk back in October and something you said in that talk really stayed with me throughout it. And you said, we are not tethered to this course by default, but by choice. And one of the choices that you mentioned in that talk was choosing love. Explain to us how you envision love and how you see it as a glue that can inform the choices that we make to show up for each other. In that talk, I um, turned love into an acronym because to me, I think a lot of times when people hear love, they think just romantic. But for me, 
love entails responsibility and accountability as much as it entails compassion and care. Um, so I turned it into the acronym um, L-O-V-E. So L, listen to learn. O, organize with an open mind. V, value a variety of perspectives. And E, engage everyone in every way possible. So again, regardless of how much experience I have in the field or the person who has 10 more years of experience than me, no single person has all the answers. Um, no single perspective is the standard of thought, right? Uh, so we have to actively listen to learn to people in order to be innovative and resilient in the way that we address these very deeply entrenched um, systemic issues in our country and world overall. So that's the L in love for me. There's O, organized with an open mind. So it's being creative as much as you're being intentional, right? There's, again, there's no single way to solve a problem. What matters is the intention behind the practice that you are engaging in, right? You have to think outside the box because when you don't, I feel like you end up repeating cycles. So L, listen to learn. O, organize with an open mind. And V, value a variety of perspectives that's where intersectionality becomes very foundational for me um, because again we're all parts of this world and so we all have a responsibility of taking care of the world as well as taking care of each other um, and then e engage everyone in every way possible every way possible so reaching out to folks from all walks of life that requires being mindful of working people's time, um, inclusive of all forms of ability as well as language barriers, um, and really kind of being proactive in your thought to a barrier. So we can't be exclusive in the fight for justice. That would be counterproductive. And it's also a luxury that movements for change cannot afford to not be as inclusive as possible in order to get that. You know, Kat, there are a lot of challenges. There are lots of issues. They're all interconnected. And yet there is a hope that I hear in what you're saying and what I heard in your TEDx talk. As you look ahead to the work that's being done and the work that needs to be done, what is it that gives you hope that change will happen? That's a tough question. It feels like you think it's not, but it is. Um, I love Octavia Butler's quote, the only lasting truth is change. And I live by it. Um, nothing changes if nothing changes, right? Uh, at, with respect to justice. So the fact that I'm willing to get up and do the work to make a change and that I know without a shadow of doubt that someone will be by my side and someone will be trying to push the work further with me. That makes me believe and understand and hold dear to my heart the fact that I'm not alone in this um, and that people might have the same morals as me and the same values as me and the same perspective um, on the fact that we need to change things and we need to do it sooner than later. Um, I think that gives me hope. The fact that I know that someone will be there supporting me along the way and I will be supporting someone else along the way because it's not just me. Like I draw inspiration from so many people and I want to further their work as well. And so for as long as I can keep seeing that, um, I won't lose hope in the fact that 
change can will always happen. It's just a matter of whether or not that change will be for the better. I don't know about y'all, but I operate on the climate change timeline. So that's why I have a general sense of urgency um, with everything that I do. So really, we don't have the time to wait and see who else is going to make changes. Like it's as much, it's fully on us to do that for ourselves, for the future generations that we're borrowing this earth from, from, you know, the past. There's a, there are whole generations of activists that we're trying to follow in their footsteps and take it further. Right. And like, I believe in our ability to do that. So that keeps me going. Thank you for continuing that legacy. Catherine Morris is a scholar activist focused on environmental justice, and she's also a master's of public policy candidate at the University of Connecticut. Kat, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your show and your highlighting um, other activists who are doing this type of work. We'll link to Kat's TEDx talk at our website, ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Kat's also been working at the municipal and state level to pass legislation that would declare racism a public health crisis in Connecticut. After the break, Akia S. Callum talks about how she's working toward racial justice here in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're talking to young women activists in Connecticut. They're fighting for change around issues like race, environmentalism, and transportation. Akia S. Callum is president of the NAACP Connecticut State Conference Youth and College Division. She's also director of community impact and marketing at Waterbury Bridge to Success and she lives in New Haven. Akia was first exposed to activism through her church, and I asked her to talk about that experience. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I currently am uh, still a member of Nashville Baptist Church while we're in in the midst of this pandemic, but Nashville definitely was a cornerstone of advocacy for me. Um, Many of the greats went um, went through or went to to that, that church, and we learned more about not only um, intentionality around preserve, preserving Black culture, but also the history, historical context um, from the Caribbean perspective, but also um, from the African diaspora and figuring out how to intertwine those. Um, I think also I had the opportunity to meet many elected officials who happen to be or technically are advocates on behalf of the people. So learning how they are able to connect resources from the community's perspective, centering community voice, and really being at that pulpit and telling us what's going on um, and how we could add value um, to whatever they have going on, whether it was legislatively, policy-wise, or just community programming. And then also think about the amount of activities I was able to do during that time period when I was attending Longshore Baptist Church um, from birth all the way up to um, me going to college, um, really having some some centering activities for us to be a part of. Like I went to the Apollo Theater when I was 11 years old or when I was 13 years old, I was able to go to the courthouse um, and really connect with Judge Shares and learn a little bit more about the legal system. And like now that was pretty much like my entre- my, my appetizer rather um, to me trying to be an advocacy, um, whether it was on a corporate level and being an attorney or grassroots, which I pretty much got jumpstart in um, shortly after um, middle school. So that kind of 
exposure to the different pathways to community, but also something you just said about being exposed to the fullness of the diaspora, those Caribbean roots, those African traditions, and then bringing that together within a Black space in the United States. How has that part of your history, your culture, and your background shaped the kinds of things you do today? Yeah, um, so my parents immigrated or migrated rather from Jamaica um, to the United States in 1996. Um, I'm 23 years old, so you guys could kind of do the math around that. But that definitely shaped my viewpoint where, you know, people come here for opportunities. Uh, and even this this constant conversation about, you know, illegal quote unquote immigrants like that definitely also shaped the or impacted me um, knowing that Several of my family members went through that process and uh, how rigorous it was, but also degrading and demeaning it was as well, where people are, are trying to say that, you know, folks are illegal. Um, that's not necessarily true when we're on stolen land. So really trying to center that point and how do we not advocate on behalf of those um, who might not have access to all the resources. So I didn't realize how privileged I was until probably when I was applying to college. Um, and I had to go through the process of applying for the FAFSA and like insert entering all, like, I didn't recognize that I was low income. I didn't recognize that I had different um, barriers that I had to overcome, whether it was, you know, having parents that were undocumented or going through the process um, where I had to enter in all zeros on my FAFSA and kind of being nervous about whether or not I'll be able to receive aid from your school. Um, even thinking about support services for my high school, I was working um, at Lori Cumble's office, council member Lori Cumble's office, who's now majority leader um, for city council currently. And, you know, recognizing um, how to connect people to resources was definitely something that I was um, interested in, but also like following legislation and policy. Um, and I think I went to my, during that time period, I went to, what jumpstarted me into that even was, the murder of Trayvon Martin. Um, so I think it was a twofold effect for me personally because I was born here, but I also had that Caribbean background or lineage that I had to look back on um, and kind of going based off of their strength. That sense of two-ness, of being born and raised in the United States or, or raised in the U.S., but also feeling not fully connected because of those kinds of challenges, interestingly, was something that W.B. Du Bois talked about many years ago in The Souls of Black Folk. And you are now the state president of the NAACP's Youth and College Division, which seems to bring all of that full circle of how do you embrace where people are and navigate community. Talk to us about that position, why you decided to pursue that office, and also what you want to accomplish. I started, I found the Black Student Union in 2015 at my alma mater at Post University um, after being defunct for about 13 years. And during that time period, I was pretty much took some of the skills that I was able to gain and acquire when I was in Brooklyn um, to Connecticut and, you know, connect with some community resources. So whether it was National Congress of Black Women, which I, I joined my freshman year of college, or the NAACP being a volunteer um, during the time period that, that the Greater Waterbury um, branch was um, being reactivated and really helping them with um, their office space, thanks to Ms. Gladys. Um, you know, really connecting with community organizations that were centering Black people and making sure that we could not only support them, but they could also support us as Black students on campus. Um, during So I 
met President Esdale, I think a week, I mean, a year after um, at their Freedom Fund dinner. And at that time I was used to like carrying business cards. So I, I ordered some business card paper from Amazon um, and designed some business cards and I printed them out at school. And I remember giving President Esdale my business card and he was like, who created these? I was like, I did. Um, and I had created the, um, the bulletin or the program for the um, Waterbury branch for their Freedom Fund that time period too. So he was asked, I was like, oh, I did the, the Freedom Fund booklet as well. So we had some further conversation about the Black Student Union um, and we always kept in contact. And I think I was at Yale at the Black Saturday Conference and President Esdale and some other members of the Youth, Youth and College Division called me and I had a conversation with them and they were saying, you know, we're really looking to build our executive committee um, are you interested in being on? So I said, yeah, I, I am. Um, and I was appointed a second vice president um, in 2017 of March um, and pretty much every year ascended up. So I ended up being the president of the Connecticut State Conference in 2019. In the midst of everything that's going on, um, both with the pandemic on, on Black lives, um, but also thinking about how racism, racism is more clear um, and prevalent I think it's been magnetized because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, seeing how young people are really trying to to not not only bring themselves to the table, but also bring their, also build their own tables um, and expertise and, and create content um, that's relative 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 to them um, and how they're they are envisioning their communities and what they want to see changed. I love that you showed up to that event prepared, that you never know who you're going to meet. You'll never know when that opportunity will appear, but you show up ready. You don't have to get ready. So I feel like that's a life lesson, Akia, not just for youth leaders, but for all of us. So let's mm -hmm. dig into some of the issues that you just mentioned and that need to not just be content with a seat at the table, but to really build your own table or flip the table if you have to. Mm -hmm. We've seen the power of youth-led organizing over this last year in the movement for Black Lives, the, the efforts to draw attention to disparities with COVID-19, and now we're front and center in this battle over voting rights. What would you mm -hmm. say are one or, or two of the top issues that you and your peers are really focusing on right now? Yeah, so... um within the last two years, we've been intentional about creating subcommittees. Um, and currently the NAACP it has a hashtag we are done dying campaign. I, I just had a conversation last week about somebody about how hashtags um, are utilized. And they were like, you know, Kia, I don't understand hashtag we are done dying. Like, that's not true. And I'm like, no, it doesn't necessarily, it's not only necessarily tied to um, the travesties of um, police brutality or murder, but it's also talking about healthcare. It's also talking about education. It's also talking about these different intricate um, subsets of life, right? How do we now continue to live um, and live freely, but also live in a, in a in a manner that's conclusive to our all, all of our identities and our communities? Um, so that's what the hashtag is for. So I, I would put that on a pedestal or or, or put that as an overlay to what I'm about to say, because um, the NWC has six guiding game changers, but I think what is near and dear to my heart definitely is ed education and civic engagement. Last year was a really, really huge civic engagement year. And I think sometimes we get into the framework that the mindset that we are only limited to every four years, 
where we have presidential elections, but we also recognize that the census has a direct impact. And that, although that's every 10 years, um, we could con continue to create change and avenues for us to um, lead, do the build up method um, as opposed to just waiting. And last year was definitely really huge for, for youth and college where we were able to call about 6,000 houses um, to ensure that they were getting out the vote, reminding people to get out the vote. We, we helped with, with some GOTV campaigns, whether it was canvassing or firing um, folks, giving people um, food, <laughs> rise to, to the polls. Because um, although we might not have as severe um, like election problems here in the state of Connecticut, and we know that our other neighbors, such as Georgia, um, Florida, Texas, might have some more strenuous um, election fraud. Things like that could still happen here. And really trying to make sure that we are getting the information out, getting the resources out, making sure that people have um, where their polling locations are, know a little bit more about the census and why it's so important for them to fill out the census. And even with the current, um, when the NWCP has sued the state of Connecticut in 2018 around prison gerrymandering, like even like, given the definition or given life to that and, and bring that information out to the communities as well. Akia, a couple of days ago, I had a discussion with some students in a class I teach on issues in race and ethnicity in American politics. And we were talking about this trial in Minnesota uh, about the death of George Floyd. And one of the students said, Professor, I'm sick of this, what's the move? And it really made us think about we can talk about the problems or we can focus on the work or do some combination. So, Akia, as you look forward to the things that you want to do, the spaces where you want your voice to be heard, what's the move? Yeah, I literally was just having this conversation last week because um, I think sometimes we get so caught up in the media perception on how protest and activism shows up in the world, whether it is, you know, marching in the streets, doing sit-ins, doing die-ins. Like I did a die-in when I was in high school um, when Trayvon Martin was murdered. Um, and that was on World Star, so that's a throwback. But, you know, I think what's next is really, you know, finding your lane and, and learning other people's lane as well so you can figure out how to do some cross-collaboration. Um, and I think for me personally, like, my, move, my next move is always policy and legislation. Um, and I think sometimes we, we don't know or it's not put on a pedestal or highlighted around certain opportunities that might be elected positions, such as the Board of Education. Like they are the ones that pretty much are the guideline and advocate on behalf of, of whether, you know, you go to school at eight o'clock in the morning, you go to school at nine o'clock in the morning, or are you going to school during the middle of COVID, whether it's going to be virtual or it's going to be in person. Um, so those folks that, that actually have power and agency, I'm not saying that we don't have, but you know, they're in a position of power where they're able to change some rules around. So definitely be around policy, especially especially knowing that this year is a longer legislative year. And I think session ends in June um, as opposed to May. Um, so I think legislation would be a good thing. Also doing research and following up on, on current events. Cause I think sometimes people are like, you know, it doesn't, the process ended and we're no longer saying the names of those who lost their lives. Um, and sometimes that's not true, right? We're not in Minnesota, we're not in Kentucky, we're not in Atlanta, Georgia, and they've been protesting this entire time period. We're just not there and they're not shedding light to that. And that's, they're doing it on purpose. So, you know, making sure that you're still 
keeping up with, with some of the things that are going on in the communities, whether it's around legislation, testifying, um, which is so important, calling your calling your legislator and saying, you know, are you in support of X, Y, and Z? Are you in support of making sure that we have early voting in the state of Connecticut because other states had it and it would be a, a, a huge service for us to have that because now we'll be able to um, increase the rate of people that participate in the elections, whether it is, um, citywide elections, statewide elections, what have you, they'll be able to have the opportunity to actually exercise their right to vote. So really figuring out what align, what you align with, um, what your passions are. And I know I'm really passionate about education, so I'll always go to education, legislation, um, and civic engagement. But, you know, figuring out what directly aligns with you and how you, how you want to see your own community and your own world. Akia S. Callum is president of the Youth and College Division for the Connecticut NAACP State Conference. She's also director of community impact and marketing at Bridge to Success in Waterbury. Akia, thank you so much for joining us and for being a disruptor. Thank you so much for having me and inspiring me daily. If you have ideas of disruptors you'd like us to highlight, let us know. You can email us at disrupted at ctpublic.org. This episode was produced by Shekinah Collier, Katie Tolarski, and Anna Elizabeth. And this is Shekinah's final week with us as an intern. We wish her the very best. Continue to represent Connecticut. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be back next week. <laughs>